This evening we continue with our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome, and we make a significant transition tonight as we now move to the beginning of chapter 9 of this epistle. In a few moments I'll give some introductory remarks to the significance of this chapter in church history. But first, I will take the opportunity to read the beginning of chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. This is no guarantee that I'll be able to cover that much this evening, but at least for our edification, I will read that portion of the chapter. And so I would ask the congregation to stand for the reading of the Word of God. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. But it is not that the Word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. He who has ears to hear the Word of God in its fullness. Let them hear it and be convicted by it. Please be seated. Let us pray. Father, now as we continue our journey into the depth and riches and the mystery of Your grace, We ask once more that you would condescend 
to assist us in our frailty, that when we hear these hard sayings, we may not only understand them, we may embrace them, we may love them, and we may even indeed contend for them. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I turn my attention directly to the text, let me just give a few words of background about the significance of this chapter in Romans in church history. To be sure, the doctrine of God's sovereign election is not an arcane item that is found only rarely in obscure passages of Scripture or requires the pursuit of a diligent scholar to uncover it through hints that are carefully concealed, but rather the doctrine of election is one that is appearing on virtually every page of the Bible from Genesis through the book of Revelation. But with all of the biblical testimony to the sovereignty of God's grace in salvation, There is no segment or section of Scripture that more definitively sets it forth, more clearly, persuasively, and convincingly lays it out before us as the Apostle does here in chapter 9 of Romans. The great Swiss theologian, Roger Nicole, who recently celebrated his 90th birthday, and who regularly attends worship here at St. Andrews, who was present this morning here in the front of the church, is a theologian for whom we are all profoundly grateful for his vast knowledge and contributions to the life of God's people in the 20th century and now into the 21st century. Dr. Nicole once made the observation that we are by nature Pelagian. That is, we, by our fallen nature, assume that we have the power to motivate ourselves, to incline our own hearts, to make the decision unaided to come to Christ while we are yet in the flesh. And of course, that assessment of our natural hostility to the sovereignty of grace, to a built-in allergy to sovereign election, that that condition that we suffer from in our fallen nature is not instantly cured by conversion. I would say the vast majority of people who have come to Christ still ride the horse, at least of semi-Pelagianism, and try to find a way to escape the full implications of the doctrine as it is set forth here in the ninth chapter of Romans. I have to confess that I struggled with it for at least five years after my conversion, despite being exposed to godly and, and uh, able professors who, set, who tried to explain the Scriptures to me, 
but that built-in resistance to the sovereignty of God's grace found a root in my soul, and it was not until a careful treatment of chapter 9 of Romans that I was brought kicking and screaming against my will to my initial acquiescence to pure Augustinianism. And I did that not on my own investigative uh, uh, ability, but I was assisted through the midwifery of John Gerstner, that great defender of Reformed theology, who forced me, again against my will, to read carefully Luther's Bondage of the Will and then Edward's Freedom of the Will, both of which Christian classics deal at length with the content of chapter 9. But it was finally looking at the text itself that caused me to throw up my hands and say, I can fight this battle no more. I surrender, Paul. You have closed my obstreperous mouth, and now I have to embrace this doctrine even though I don't have to like it. And as I told the congregation before, when I was a seminary student, I had a little card on my desk upon which I had written these words, it is your duty to believe and to teach what the Bible teaches, not what you would like it to teach. And that bothered my conscience no end as well, because I did not like this chapter, but I was doomed to be defeated by being overwhelmed by the sheer force of the text of sacred Scripture. And it then became my lot in life not only to believe this doctrine, but to have to teach it and defend it against all kinds of people who held the same position I used to hold. But there's nothing worse than a Reformed Arminian. But really, when I look at this chapter, I say, it's so clear, I don't see how God in His Word could have made it any more clear than it is here in this great chapter 9. And I wonder how I used to get around it, and how my friends in the faith who still will not submit to it get around it. And I'll answer that question before we look at the text itself and say that there are three basic ways in which people try to get around the clarity, the perspicuity of this treatment of the doctrine by the Apostle Paul. The first and easiest and most common way of getting around it is by ignoring it, avoiding it, of carrying the discussion about matters of grace and sovereignty to other portions of Scripture and studiously stay away from chapter 9. That usually happens by people who know enough to realize the force of this chapter. The second way in which it is gotten around, so to speak, is by those who come to chapter 9 and say that in this chapter, Paul is not talking about God's sovereign election of individuals unto salvation, but rather what Paul is talking about here is God's sovereign election of nations to a particular historic destiny. 
namely that it is speaking of the election of Israel as distinguished from Syria, Babylonia, Greeks, or Rome, or any other nation of antiquity. And that the grace of which the apostle is expounding here is not saving grace, but rather the grace of the promises of earthly benefits, which promises included the inheritance of a piece of real estate that, as you know, during this very hour is still very much uh, being contested, even with violence. The third manner in which it has gotten around, so to speak, is by that method that we've looked at repeatedly through our study of Romans, by the common view of divine election, that election involves God's foreknowledge in that He looks down the corridor of time and He knows in advance how people will respond when they hear the gospel, and those whom He knows from the beginning will say yes to Christ. He chooses them for salvation, and those He knows will not respond positively to the gospel. Those do not receive this choice of grace and salvation. So those are the three basic ways that people get around this text, and we'll look at each one of these as we unfold it. So let's now turn our attention, if we may, to the text itself. Let me just, one more uh, prefatory remark, just in case you're not a regular here uh, or not familiar with uh, my theological position. I can remember when I was uh, a college professor and then a seminary professor, it would bother me to hear the ideal of the professor being one who taught from a position of neutrality, (coughs) just simply trying to give information to the students and not trying to influence their thinking in any way. And that was held up as some kind of of an ideal of pedagogy where I began my teaching. But I didn't agree with that, and so I did feel it was my duty on the opening day of class to tell them my basic perspective, where I was coming from, and I would tell the students, I'm coming at this from a Christian perspective, from a Reformed perspective, and I'm here not only to give you information, but I'm after your minds. So you might as well be prepared, because I'm going to do everything I can to persuade you of these truths. And that's, of course, my duty when I stand in the pulpit of the church of Christ. I'm not here to be a disinterested spectator. I'm trying to persuade you of the truth of this content that we will be looking at. So, forewarned is forearmed. And so, if you don't want to listen to somebody who's already been persuaded of this position, now's the time to shut your ears. However, If you want to hear the Word of God, take your fingers out of your ears and listen. Paul begins chapter 9 with this statement, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, comma, before I go past the comma, let me just comment on this opening statement. Sometimes we think that uh, as we study 
and learn the things of God that whatever convictions we come to are put in concrete forever. But I trust that as we are more and more informed by the Word of God, as we immerse ourselves more fully in it, we should always be open to correction from the Word itself and to reproof from that uh, Word. And from time to time, if we are really attentive to the Word of God, we will discover that we have erred in the past in our own understanding of some of these things. For many years, indeed for decades, I've always understood this opening statement in Romans 9 as Paul declaring, excuse me, as Paul's declaring, sorry for that grammatical error, the possessive before the gerund, right? Isn't that right, mister? That Paul is here uh, declaring what I have always thought to be a formal oath, the taking of a vow. And I have pointed to this passage on more than one occasion to, to give an example of a lawful vow and a lawful oath that Scripture permits. Because after all, if the Apostle Paul in sacred Scripture takes an oath in his writing, then that would indicate that there are times when such oaths are indeed permissible. But to my chagrin, I learned just recently that I made a mistake in my understanding of this text because of a detail of a preposition that in this opening statement, Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ, en Christu. And he uses the preposition en instead of the preposition pros. And what I didn't realize was that whenever people were swearing in the name of Christ, historically the preposition pros was used rather than the preposition en. So in all likelihood, Paul is not swearing an oath here and is not giving a sacred vow. Now, you may not find that an earth-shaking revelation tonight, but uh, for me it was a gospel goody. I I like those little details that uh, come through. But even though it falls short of a vow or an oath, nevertheless, the way Paul opens this chapter of Romans, he is giving a solemn declaration with the deepest solemnity that he is able to muster coming short of an actual sacred oath or vow. And there's a reason for his concern to state this opening affirmation is because he's about to deal with some things that are very heavy and very problematic for his fellow Jews. And so before he goes in to this chapter 9, 10, and 11, where Paul looks at the way in which God has taken the gospel from the Jews and into the Gentile community and grafting in Gentiles in the place of Israel, he wants to make sure that as he's about to give that teaching, that, the invent, that in the case that the Jewish community in Rome might read this epistle, that he is speaking, as it were, 
through His own tears. He's not preaching or teaching His own personal anger or hostility towards His kinsmen. Quite the contrary. He says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I'm speaking as a Christian who embraces, who loves aletheia, the biblical concept of truth, the truth that is embodied in Christ Himself, who is the way and the truth and the life. I'm speaking, Paul says, in Christ. As a Christian, I'm not lying, and my conscience is also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. I'm speaking in Christ, I'm speaking in the Holy Ghost, and I'm speaking to you out of the depths of my own conscience. My conscience bears witness to me that I speak the truth. That is, Paul is saying, there is no deceit. There is no malice. I'm speaking the sober, unvarnished truth to you in Christ and by the Holy Spirit. Now, what is this truth that he is declaring so solemnly here? Listen to what he says. That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. He introduces this portion of the text by this solemn avowal that he is a man who is deeply pained. He is going through what the text calls dolor. Remember the via dolorosa, the way of grief, the way of pain. And he says, this grief, this pain is not a passing thing, but it is a grief that attends my life and perturbs my heart continually. Think back to Jesus as He approached Jerusalem, and He considered the way in which the people of that city had hardened themselves against the Word of God. And Christ cried out in a lament, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets and kill those whom the Father has sent, how often I would have gathered you to myself as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. It is for that reason that Jesus is known as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. It's interesting to me that the editor of Table Talk magazine, for whom I work as a dutiful laborer, if you think I have anything to do with selecting the articles that I write for that magazine, you're completely wrong. 
I write according to what I am assigned by Parson Parson. Do I not? I tell the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience bears witness to me. And I was, I was really uh, surprised that the assignment that I just received last week for my next article that I have to write for Table Talk has to do with grief. And what Burke and the other editors wanted me to do was to write anecdotally out of my own personal experience, and they asked me to reveal in the pages of that article that is to come, which I have not decided yet what I would do, ways in which I have personally experienced grief. And as I contemplated that, the first thought that came into my mind, of course, was the loss of my father when I was 17 years old. I was stricken with grief that has not completely left my soul since that time. But when I look back over the years of my life and I think, where have I really experienced grief? I thought about the loss of my friend Jim Boyce, not just simply because a friend was lost, but because a comrade was taken out of the battle in which we find ourselves today. But when I began to search my heart from my grief experiences in this world, I discovered that almost all of them were associated with departures from biblical truth that I've seen take place in the church over several decades. But that's what causes me to mourn inwardly. And in that sense, I feel like I can relate to the Apostle Paul because he loved his fellow Jews. He cared about their well-being. He cared profoundly about them. And when they didn't respond to Christ as their Messiah, Paul was grieved continually in his heart. Again, if I can be personal, I, I have many, many friends in this town and in this country whom I love dearly who are not Christians. And every time I see them, it doesn't make me mad. I don't want to go up and shake them and say, what's wrong with you? It just hurts that they don't know the Savior. They don't know what they're missing. They're still alienated from their Redeemer. Yes, Bill, I looked at you that way <laughs> for a long time. I don't have to look, I don't have to grieve over you anymore. But you know what I'm talking about. We all know what it means to grieve over friends and relatives who don't know Christ. And this is how Paul begins this important chapter. I had this great sorrow, the continual grief in my heart, and now as if this solemn declaration of his personal concern for his countrymen were not enough, Paul escalates his personal description of his pain to a degree 
unprecedented in his writings or that I can find in anybody else's writings. Listen to what Paul says here. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Do you hear that? Paul's saying, I love these people so much. I care so deeply for their condition, which is a condition of being lost, that if I could do it, if they could be brought to redemption by my being accursed, I'd be willing to give up my own salvation for my brothers and sisters according to the flesh. Remember, he introduced this by saying, and I tell you the truth, I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness to what I'm saying here. I am willing to be accursed for the sake of my brethren according to the flesh who are Israelites. You know, I can't imagine too many things that I wouldn't be willing to do to see my friends come to Christ. But I've never said I'd be willing to trade my salvation for theirs. I don't have that much love, I think, for anybody. But the apostle did. And do you realize what he's saying here? Not that I would be willing to be at loss for some of the benefits that I receive from the Father. But he he said, not that I'd be willing simply to lose my reputation if it would mean winning some of my friends to Christ. The word that Paul uses here, I'd be willing to be on a tema, anathema, under the very curse of God, delivered to total destruction. It's the word that Paul uses when he writes to the Galatians when they are being seduced to depart from the gospel of justification by faith alone. We remember the apostle writes to the Galatians, if anybody preaches unto you any other gospel than that which you have received, even if it's an angel from heaven, let him be anathema. Let him be anathema. Let him be damned. See, when the gospel was at stake, the enemies of the gospel could provoke the wrath of the apostle that he would look at them and say, damn you for destroying the gospel. That's the worst kind of curse that could ever be delivered against a human being. It goes back deeply into the Old Testament. You remember at the time of the conquest of Canaan, 
that God put the Canaanites under the ban. And He forbade the people of Israel to spare them or to take their goods. But He said, I want this place destroyed. And the goods of the Canaanites burned because I have delivered them over to absolute destruction. That's what it means to be anathema. And Paul said, I'd be willing to call down the curse of God on my own head, to be placed under the ban, to be placed under the anathema of the Lord, if that's what it would take to win my kinsmen according to the flesh, Israel can't miss the significance of the language here when Paul speaks of his kinsman katasarka, his kinsman according to the flesh, because the apostle had two different sets of kin. He had his natural kin, and he had his supernatural kin the supernatural kinship that he enjoyed was the brotherhood of all who are in Christ. Remember chapter 9 follows chapter 8, and chapter 8 at the heart of the discussion there was Paul's exposition of the glorious work of Christ in securing for us our adoption into the family of God. Remember, Paul was commissioned to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And every Gentile who came to Christ and was converted was a kinsman to the apostle Paul according to the Spirit. That person was a spiritual brother or sister to Paul, participating in that adoption that God had wrought. But now he's talking about his original kinfolk his blood brothers, his nation, his kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Now listen, let me just say, there's no way we're going to finish this tonight, so don't, don't even think about it. <laughs> but listen to what he speaks of with regard to to his kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Listen to this. This is so rich. To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Now, that list is not exhaustive, but let's look at what he does mention. Israelites to whom pertains the adoption. We think of adoption almost exclusively in New Testament categories, that that great benefit that all who are justified receive when they are pronounced just by God and welcomed into the family of God, into the church through adoption, as we've already seen. But this idea of adopted children of God 
goes way back into the pages of the Old Testament. Israel was the adopted son of God. Do you remember in the strange application of Old Testament uh, prophecy that is used by Matthew when after Jesus is born and the threat by Herod comes against the infants through the slaughter of the innocents, and the angel warns Joseph in a dream to flee from Bethlehem and not to return to uh, Nazareth, but to go into Egypt until the threat is removed. And we are told that Joseph took Mary and the babe and fled into Egypt until such time as the threat of Herodian persecution was over, and then he was instructed to return to Israel, fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy, out of Egypt have I called my son. That Christ personifies the adopted people of Israel. The original uh, reference of that refers to the Exodus, when God redeems His people from the yoke of slavery under Pharaoh and calls them this nation His Son. So, the Israelites are the ones to whom it pertains to enjoy sonship. And it's killing Him that the adoption of which He has been speaking, including bringing us into the kingdom of God and the fatherhood of God in Christ, is missed by the original Son, Israel. And what else pertained to Israel? The glory. I had a friend in high school, tremendous athlete. He excelled in several sports, but his best sport was hockey, ice hockey. We played on the same team. And I have to tell you, hockey was my favorite sport, though it was my least proficient sport. I was like a wounded duck out there on the rink. And this friend of mine could skate circles around me and could shoot with either hand. He was, he was tremendous. And when he would score a goal in a game, he would raise his stick on high and look to the fans and say, my people, my people. And I would say, Jimmy, what are you doing? He says, it's glory. I'm basking in the glory. Well, we finally grew up away from that, and he took up golf, and I hadn't played golf, and he got me to play golf, and we started playing golf when I was in seminary going to these various courses. Then I went on to school and lost touch with him. He moved to Connecticut. And then about 10 years later, I got a call from him out of nowhere from Connecticut. He said, R.C., he said, what? He says, I'm coming to Pittsburgh. Let's get together. I said, for what? He said, I want to recover the glory. We got to go back to those golf courses. <laughs> this guy's nuts. 
we have such a superficial understanding of glory. You know, the word there in the Greek is the word doxe. We get the word doxology from it. When we sing the doxology on Sunday morning, we are giving glory to God. The Latin equivalent is the word gloria, and we sing the gloria patra. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, attributing this supernatural majesty to God, the God whose glory is so brilliant, so refulgent that human eyes are not permitted to behold it. And yet, in terms of Israel, He allowed His glory to dwell in the midst of the people. And the focal point of that glory in the Old Testament was that glory of God that hovered over the mercy seat, over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. Remember how when the Ark of the Covenant fell into the hands of the conquering Philistines and was captured, that the cry of the people went up, Ichabod, the glory of God has departed And it was connected in Israel to the Shekinah, that outward blazing light that manifested His glory, that made God a consuming fire. We think of when the glory departed from the gates of Jerusalem, we saw the glory of God rising up from the city and departing. We think of the birth of Jesus and the visitation of the angels to the shepherds outside of Jerusalem, where in the midst of their announcement, the glory of God flooded the landscape. The glory of God was shining all around. That doxa. That gloria pertains to Israel. It was to Israel that God first manifested His glory, where He invested His glory in the community that He formed out of the slaves in Egypt. Paul says, I'm constantly grieving in my heart for my kinsmen, according to the plus who are Israelites, because it belongs to them to have the adoption. It belongs to them to have the glory of God. To them belong the covenants, the covenant with Adam covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant with Moses, the covenant with David, these covenants that we inherit all come from the Jews, not from the Gentiles. They come from my kinsmen, 
according to the flesh. These covenants belonged then. The giving of the law. The law didn't come through Hammurabi. It came through Moses. The law didn't come from Babylon, from Phoenicia, from Egypt. It came from the people of Israel through the mediatorial work of Moses. That's where the law came from. We owe our law to the Israelites. The service of God, really the word there is latria, which means the worship of God. How we've been instructed on the bringing of the sacrifices of praises to God in solemn assembly, in corporate worship, we didn't get from the Greeks or from the Romans. The principles of worship that shape our devotion even to this day were born in Israel when God delivered to His people the principles by which He was to be worshipped and adored and sanctified. And the promises. I don't know if I mentioned to you last week, but I heard J. Vernon McGee on the radio. <laughs> he said the problem with people in the church today is they they sing this old gospel song, standing on the promises, while they're sitting on the premises. <laughs> oh, Dr. McGee had a way about him, didn't he? But those promises that we stand on did not come de novo out of the mind of Paul or John or Peter in the New Testament era, but the promises of God came through centuries of prophetic utterances, going all the way back to the Proto-Evangel in the third chapter of Genesis when God promised that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the serpent in the process of which His own heel would be bruised. And thousands of promises of the one who would come out of Israel, out of the root of Jesse, out of the loins of David, all of those promises of the coming kingdom pertained to the Israelites. And so Paul says, think of it. All these things, the adoption, the glory the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship of God, the promises of God, all of these have come through my kinsmen according to the flesh. Israel, wonder ye then at the weight of my tears. Of whom are the fathers from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. There is no 
earthly way that I can treat that sentence in a minute or two. So we'll stop with the of whom and from whom of the fathers according to the flesh that Christ came. See, lastly, what pertains to the Israelites is Jesus, a Jew from the seed of David. Just this week, I got a letter from somebody asking me a question that, frankly, I hear all the time. They said, Dr. Sproul, you frequently quote Martin Luther, and obviously you're a fan of his, and you hold him in high esteem, and yet we hear that in his later years, he became viciously antagonistic to the Jews in Germany, and so that he became Exhibit A for all the worst kinds of anti-Semitism. And some people even say that he sowed the seeds for the Holocaust, and that Hitler was just following in the train of Luther with his hatred of the Jews. Well, it is true. At the end of his life, he lashed out against Jews for various reasons in the 16th century, and in a manner that was not a really all that unusual in the polemics of that day. But earlier on in his ministry, Martin Luther wrote a magnificent essay on the debt that the Church of Christ owes to the Jews, in which in this great essay, Luther pointed out the biblical principle, salvation is of the Jews. And in that essay, which is often overlooked in the debate, people fail to hear Luther saying, we have nothing except for the legacy of Israel. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this glorious chapter which is introduced by such a solemn avowal by Your Apostle to the Gentiles for His heartfelt love and grief for His kinsmen according to the flesh. As we continue to study this chapter and the next two that flow out of it, may we be ever mindful of the pain that drips from the pen of the Apostle as he speaks of these things. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.